Okay, here we go. And a one, a two, a one, two. Welcome to the most recent podcast in our series, Beyond the Expected, The Coronavirus Effect. I'm your host, Michael Bernstein, interim president at Stony Brook University. Today is April 29th. Stony Brook is now 59 days into its clinical and academic response to the coronavirus pandemic. And today we're going to speak with some of Stony Brook University Hospital's frontline superheroes, three nurses who are as close to the front as the front line gets. I'll mention that as of today, we have had about 2,000 inpatients at Stony Brook University Hospital with suspicious symptoms, and more than half of those have been diagnosed with COVID-19. What's really inspiring about our guests today is that they are not just battling the overwhelming effects of this pandemic by providing patient care, managing teams, and leading new and innovative projects uh, to address this emergency. They've also developed creative solutions that are helping to comfort patients, save lives, and keep themselves and their colleagues healthy, strong, and energized. We're going to explore and celebrate these efforts today, appropriately at the advent of what is National Nurses Week, May 6th through May 12th. So let me introduce these incredible healthcare providers, our colleagues at University Hospital. Cindy Ann Beck is a registered nurse and the nursing policy coordinator in the Department of Regulatory Affairs for Stony Brook Medicine. Her background or training is in neonatal intensive care. We'll hear about how Cindy helped get the Face Behind the Mask initiative off the ground and about a new program that will provide caregivers with a more personal way to connect with COVID-19 patients. Leslie Pronesti is a registered nurse in the Surgical Oncology Unit at University Hospital. Today, she's in a supervisory role where she trains other nurses to meet unprecedented challenges. Leslie was inspired by friends and colleagues early on in the COVID pandemic, so she started In This Together, a hashtag used on social media for people to share their stories and connect with one another. We'll talk with Leslie about the importance she places on providing compassionate care for COVID-19 patients who are struggling with physical symptoms and with the anxiety of being separated from their loved ones. With her caring and clinical expertise, Leslie leads by example. And finally, we have Allison Rowe with us today. She's been at Stony Brook University Hospital since 2007. She's currently the Associate Director of Nursing in the Department of Emergency and Cardiac Services. Before that, she spent eight years as the nurse manager in the emergency department. The leadership role Allison has taken on since the outbreak of the coronavirus pandemic can't be overstated. She's been a key member of what's known as the Hospital Incident Command Structure, HICS. She is on the leadership team that established a critically needed triage and treatment area outside the hospital's emergency department. And she is playing a crucial part in areas ranging from planned, planning for expanded critical care units and clinical services to policy formulation, quality of care, and public and patient safety measures to contain this pandemic. I want to thank all of you for joining us today on Beyond the Expected. Let's get started. Um, I'm going to start with you, Allison. Um, you have a great deal of experience in emergency care, but today we're seeing hundreds of patients, many critically ill, being admitted to university hospital at the same time with a virus we don't know a great deal about. What kinds of adjustments have you and your colleagues and the nursing teams needed to make in this new and challenging environment? 
I just want to first say thank you, Dr. Bernstein, for having me um, as a member of this podcast. It's a really rewarding opportunity to explain what nurses are doing on the front line. Um, as far as uh, change and what we've been going through, I would say that in a hospital environment, change is inevitable um, on any normal day. And with this pandemic, um, we can't underestimate the amount of change that our staff and our hospital and our environment has had to go through. So our staff coming through the door know that um, Today might be different than yesterday, and we're going to change um, as the situation changes. So very early on in the emergency department, um, we knew that we were going to start to have to uh, filter out some of our patients, start to make sure that we screen them for things like what we call, which is uh, influenza-like illness. So early on, travel history, patients with fever, cough. Um, myalgias. So we knew that we wanted to separate out those patients, so we initially started a split flow model. We quickly learned that the volume was going to start to increase significantly, and we wanted to separate our, out our patients, and that's when we started to uh, create alternative spaces uh, for our emergency department patients. Uh, so you mentioned split flow model. What does that mean? So a split flow model is essentially um, taking patients that are well and safe uh, to be cared for in a different part of either our emergency department at the time or which is current state um, in a tent in one of our parking lots on the campus. So, um, you know, that was a significant change um, and a really important one that we implemented very early on. As far as other changes, um, there's many. No visitors in our hospital is a significant change um, or limiting those visitors. The amount of PPE that we need to wear, which is our personal protective equipment that we need to wear um, each day that we come into work, um, is a pretty big change as well for us. Um, those things were normal in certain situations, but not each interaction that we have with our patients. Um, our staff taking their temperature every day before they start their shift to make sure that we are keeping track of them and they're keeping track of their own symptoms to make sure that they're safe to care for our patients. So lots of change. Lots of change. <laughs> lots of so, change. So, so let me ask you, uh, you know, obviously all new things that, you know, you and your colleagues have had to adjust to uh, with the arrival of this, of this virus. At the same time, on the flip side, I'm sure there are basic lessons and training that come back to you, so-called body memory, all of your experience as a nurse, all that training and experience over the years. So what do you find yourself drawing on that is not specifically about the pandemic, but about being the professional healthcare provider you are? Uh, to your point, there's lots of things that we use that um, our experience is being drawn upon. Um, we've had lots of disaster drills in the uh, 19 years that I've been at Stony Brook. So those disaster drills have gone from everything from um, major um, plane crashes to um, epidemics like this and pandemics like this. So um, Ebola is definitely one of the most recent ones that... We can draw upon um, things like screening our patients on the way into the emergency department, understanding the typical signs and symptoms of those patients, and making sure that we can isolate them early, making sure that we understand how to use our PPE, take off our PPE, and keep each other safe. So all of those drills that some of us, you know, are oh boy, it's, you know, another year or we're going to do another drill and, you know, and when are we actually going to use this? Unfortunately, um, we are definitely drawing upon those experiences uh, now, which 
um, is unfortunate that we need to do that, but fortunate that we've gone through many of those drills um, to get us ready for this. Exactly. So um, one one other question just now, as you reflect on these unique challenges that have emerged with uh, COVID-19, what stands out for you at the moment as being the most challenging or the thing that keeps you up the most at night uh, in this in this very difficult circumstance? I would say two things are the most challenging. Um, initially, the fear of our staff. I think our, you know, the fear of um, illness to yourself. I think right. that um, we all have gone into healthcare to take care of patients. Um, but that fear amongst our staff is, um, or ourselves is real. So, you know, that is some, a big hurdle. And thankfully, uh, our numbers have been incredibly good. Our PPE is incredibly strong, and we've done very well as a hospital and um, uh, with our staff and uh, maintaining uh, maintaining a good rate that our staff are um, doing well. I think the probably the bigger thing is that this is a marathon. It's a marathon for um, us as staff, for our families, and for our patients. So this isn't over in a day, a week, or a month. We're going to be doing this for months. And that means that our patients are going to be coming in for months and our families are going to be impacted uh, by this pandemic for months. Very good point. And Very I, good point. I think that's probably the most challenging. You know, uh, Larry Zacharese, who is the director of emergency operations for our well. university, yes. um, he always says uh, repeatedly every day now, he says, it's not a sprint, it's not a marathon, it's a triathlon. That's what we're in right now. Um, Leslie, uh, let me draw you in here. Allison's made an interesting point about, a very important point about the fear and anxiety among uh, the healthcare staff itself about their own safety and their, their own health as they confront this, this terrible uh, pandemic. Um, maybe you could start describing to us what kinds of uh, precautions and preventive measures have been uh, put in place. Do you find you have to take and your colleagues have to take both for the patient's safety, obviously, and for your own. Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me today. I'm actually honored um, to thank be part you. of this Thanks podcast, so thank here. you so much. Thank you. Um, we have also been taking on the floors as the frontline staff um, many new um, procedures in order to keep ourselves safe and keep our patients safe. So um, coming into the unit, you take your temperature before your, your shift, you take your temperature after your shift, um, donning all your, your masks, your gloves, your hand washing, your PPE coming in and out of the rooms in contact. Um, our unit is very unique is that we have a kidney transplant unit. So we have some immune compromised patients as well. So we've had to separate the COVID patients from the non-COVID patients. And that was a challenge for us in the beginning. Um, just making sure the hand washing is there, um, being able to go and um, take care of ourselves and so support each other. You, you mentioned about separating patients. Say it was very difficult in the beginning. Is that because it was hard to distinguish who was who, or was it just as a practical matter hard to separate them? So it was more of a practical matter because what we tried to do was um, assign a, a specific nurse to the COVID patients so that when we had kidney transplants or immune-compromised patients, we wouldn't have a nurse that took care of a COVID-positive patient see. to go into um, a patient with that 
such an immune compromised situation. So it becomes a real, it's like a staffing puzzle. You have to yes. figure out how to fit all the pieces together for yes. each shift. And we did that really well. We actually tried in the beginning as best we could to keep our ancillary staff out. And it was really the frontline nurses that were going in and doing all of the care for the patient as well as the nursing care as well. So that, that's another interesting point. So you say ancillary staff, you mean now uh, assistance, housekeeping, food service, and so forth? So, so So nurses are being expected to provide all those services within the patient's rooms as well? So that was more so in the beginning. Um, in the beginning, we were having just the nurses, um, at least on my unit, going into the rooms. They were taking out the garbage. They were cleaning the rooms. They were um, toileting the patients, and they were taking care of all of the, the day-to-day care that the patient needed on top of the nursing care. Right. So, And that's evolved now? You're saying that was more the case in the beginning? What's happened uh, subsequently? Subsequently now we've... Um, had really no choice because the numbers just kind of exploded and so everybody kind of took over the roles that they had so housekeeping does go into the rooms and the ancillary staff the clinical assistants are incredible in the hospital um, they are also our eyes and ears to help us out doing vital signs and and patient care as well right and I, I would imagine given the passage of time yes the volumes grown but also training has grown right all of these oh, yes. ancillary colleagues are being trained in the proper procedures that you all were starting with absolutely absolutely all to protect ourselves and make sure that we're safe for the patients and we're safe for ourselves and our families Um, and you mentioned and also Allison had mentioned this about uh, taking temperatures at the start of shifts and so forth so am I right that this has never happened before in in the hospital I mean that the idea that on a large-scale basis all personnel coming in have to be screened themselves before we can before we can deploy them on the floors? Yes, this was a new initiative that was sent out and it was to um, protect ourselves and be able to monitor our temperatures. Because as we had more nurses taking care of COVID patients, um, the exposure and then the possible being contagious um, to show signs and symptoms were first off, um, temperature. So we would monitor the temperature at the beginning of the shift and at the end of the shift. And we have had um, staff that had come in and the temperature was just over that 100 and we've had to send them home and kind of like reincorporate the floor to be able to um, supplement, you know, having to send someone home. It's interesting to consider that Long after, as we hope it someday will be, COVID-19 is a memory. Maybe some of these practices continue. Yes. Right? I mean, this may change your practices uh, in terms of staffing and and so forth uh, for a long time to come. Absolutely. Um, Cindy, let me me, uh, draw you in as well here, uh, given, you know, you've been on the front line helping nurses successfully, you know, execute their mission at University Hospital. From your perspective, in light of what we've heard so far from Allison and, and Leslie, what do you see as some of the big challenges, needs, and indeed successes so far in the, in the early months of this pandemic? Well, just like my colleagues, I want to <clears throat> excuse me, say thank you very much for having us here today thank to tell a little bit about here. our story of uh, the, the battle, you could even yes. call it over yes, there, it is. that's going on. Uh, uh, President Bernstein, but um, my job, uh, my role is very much focused on um, policies and procedures and uh, providing 
uh, information related to those things to the nurses uh, as rapidly as possible. So you could even kind of hear in what my two colleagues were saying, and you can imagine that uh, in the current environment, um, many things were needing to be adapted very quickly because of uh, various things related to the care environment that was like nothing we had ever seen and infectious um, disease, you know, an infectious virus that we had really never seen anything like before. Um, and also strange disruptions to the supply chain for various reasons that were uh, forcing us to, to alter very quickly some of our policies and our procedures uh, because we could not operate uh, the way we normally did uh, because of those things. And so we had to rapidly um, adjust what we were doing. Nurses are very, uh, people think nurses don't like policies, but they actually love policies. And <laughs> this is true. They, <laughs> they, really, they really don't ever want to just be told, oh, just do it this way and don't worry that it doesn't match the policy. I teach them all the time not to, uh, not to ex accept that as a, a way to do things. So if we were going to ask them to do something differently for whatever the reason might be, uh, if it was going to conflict with an existing policy, we had to modify that so that they had the comfort of knowing that they were not uh, violating a policy to, to do that. And a lot of times uh, it was providing them information quickly. I always uh, am encouraging the nurses to, um, I'm kind of like their phone a friend when it comes to policies or procedures. And when they're very busy and they need that information and uh, they don't have the time to look it up and search for it. Um, I'm, I'm kind of the person that helps them do that. And you can imagine, again, in this environment that they would be extraordinarily busy. And so um, my phone was ringing a lot during these times. I so bet. those are the ty so, types of things that so, I was and, supporting. And it's there. probably worth reminding our viewers and listeners, when you talk about policies, yes, I'm assuming you mean policies within University Hospital, but there are also policies set by the state Department of Health. There are policies, you know, there's the regulatory environment in which you work. All of these affect not only what you do, uh, but how you do it, right? Yes, very much so. Some of them are very, very um, local to us and unique to us and impacted by our own um, very specific set of circumstances, but some of them were um, built upon things that the state then um, gave to us, in particular things like related to the uh, allocation of scarce resources, which was a very a big concern to us uh, in the event that we found ourselves in that situation, which thankfully we have not, uh, but we needed to be prepared for that and we were uh, needing to put a policy in place and it was very much based on what the state had uh, guided us to do. So uh, yeah, we were very much interacting with um, both the state and the Department of Health and uh, also like institutions, which are around the country. Oh, yeah, the various, well, hospitals throughout the region and around the country. And I, when, when you talk about the scarcity of resources, I know, I think all three of you would agree. Uh, Carol Gomes, the chief executive officer of our hospital, Larry Zacharese, I mentioned earlier, and a whole team of people have been knocking themselves out day and night to try and maintain a, a supply chain that obviously has been stretched to the limit uh, under the present circumstances. For and sure. All yes, of you have absolutely. done a terrific job in uh, meeting this challenge, and we've been fortunate so far in being, being able literally to meet that challenge. Um, Allison, um, apropos of these, uh, of all of these observations Cindy has made, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the work you and colleagues are doing as part of the so-called uh, HICS, the Hospital Incident Command Structure, uh, and you know what role that's playing in the present crisis. 
Sure. For those that don't know, um, HICS is our uh, hospital incident command structure, as you said, um, and it is very much uh, delineated into roles and responsibilities. It's a structured system, so it's very clear who's in charge, who's in charge of what, and how that um, how those decisions are being made. Um, as Cindy already spoke about, and Leslie, you know, things are changing rapidly at Stony Brook, and we need to make sure that um, some of this is a top-down approach that we, the top, uh, understands uh, what the bottom needs, and make sure that we get the issue up um, the chain of command, and then make sure that we can implement that. So, my role is that I'm helping lead uh, the casualty care unit, which is by you know easier terms the emergency department so the casualty care unit um, I'm leading along with uh, Dr. Eric Morley, so he's the clinical medical director um, of the emergency department. And as I said earlier, our job early on was how do we make sure that we identify a patient coming into triage that had traveled? Because remember, early on, yes. travel right. was a huge indicator of risk for patients. So how do we first identify them? How do we isolate them? How do we care for them? And how do we make sure that our staff are safe uh, at that point of contact. So that was step one. Um, that very quickly evolved to um, a volume that we knew we were not going to be able to manage within the emergency department. So the HIC structure helps us create the tools um, and things that we're going to need in order to take our emergency department into a different location. Um, and as you said, um, those outside entities um, helped support those things like the Department of Health. So we worked closely with them as we moved some of our care off-site, um, which was initially to our uh, vacated ACP or our ambulatory care pavilion, future state into the, you know, current state into the field ER. And as you said, somebody like Carol Gomes as our CEO, who was instrumental in making sure that we had the tools to do our job um, outside of the four walls of our emergency department. Right. So the HICS structure helps to make sure and, all of that happens. And just to, to, I think you alluded to this uh, in your earlier remarks, HICS existed prior to COVID-19, right? This has been part of hospital leadership and governance for a long time, correct? Yeah, for sure. So. We use um, the HICS structure for all sorts of uh, problems that we have in the emergency, uh, I'm sorry, at the hospital. So if we lose electricity, our HICS structure would uh, open up and we would use that structure in order to make sure that um, we know who's leading that team and making sure that our patients are safe, making sure that we start to run through um, all of the planning stages that would be required if we lost something like electricity a plane crash, a, another know, critical incident, for hurricane, sure. hurricane Sandy, I yes. assume Hicks was activated for, uh, sure. for that. Right. Um, so given, given the decisions being made or that have been made, uh, by Hicks and by other, you know, leadership entities at the hospital at the moment, I mean, I don't know that you have the data at hand, but do you have a sense of how effective the triage and treatment areas you have established both inside the emergency department and outside of it have helped? I mean, do you have a sense that you're you're succeeding in this battle or, you know, what's your sense of where you are right now? 
Um, so the emergency department is very much driven by data. So we have lots of data about um, the number of patients that we've been seeing. And I can easily say that without creating an alternative space for our emergency department patients to be seen in, they would be, have been shoulder to shoulder in our waiting room. There's no way that we would have been able to create six feet distance between them. They would have been lined up in our emergency department halls. So it was critical that we created an alternative space and I give a lot of credit to all of the people that helped, um, you know, think of the plan, you know, implement the plan and make sure that to this day we're still being able to, um, you know, send patients to an alternative location. So early on, um, we were seeing a handful of patients a day um, and it quickly ramped up. Our peak on March 30th um, was over 150 patients, a little over 150 patients in our field ER. Um, which was a significant increase. Um, and thankfully, Indeed. it's really gone on a bell curve, sort of creeped up, peaked on March 30th, and now we're on the downward slope. That's great to, that's great to hear. Um, Leslie, let me, let me draw you back in here, uh, uh, given what we've heard so far. Um, nurses and uh, obviously nurses, physicians, other healthcare providers, um, now more than ever are playing the surrogate role of family and loved ones for our COVID-19 patients, actually for all our patients in the hospital because, uh, as mentioned earlier, we've restricted visitors to the hospital for obvious reasons. Um, can you uh, tell us about your efforts and your leadership with respect to uh, so-called heartfelt care, um, you know, how we're doing in this area? It must be very challenging and, you know, what advice and insights you have to share with, uh, with our listeners and, and viewers. Sure. Um, it really is a very difficult time for not just the patients but the families. So what we're really seeing is families are bringing their loved ones to the emergency room or through EMS and they're getting dropped off. And from that point, they come in and they see triage, and they're, they're meeting with people who have masks and gloves and gowns and all the PPE. Um, wherever they go, this is what they're seeing. They're seeing the eyes of the healthcare worker behind them. And everyone is just so incredible as they come through the door, from the first people they meet to the transporters to um, the people up on the floor, the clinical assistants. But there's a sense of loneliness and fear and anxiety that they don't have anybody with them. They can't really reach out and speak to people and let people know where they are. Their families at home are worried about them. They're constantly calling on the phones to check up on their loved ones. And we inevitably become their family. We become the ones that they depend on, the ones they look to for reassurance, um, to help them feel better, to kind of just even hold their hand talk to them, um, FaceTime them. We've seen some FaceTiming mm -hmm. yeah. um, pictures and, and um, nurses that will go into the ICUs and um, using iPads, using their own personal phones to go in and FaceTime to connect the patients with the families um, that they have on the outside. And then at least the families know that the hands that they're in are caring um, and loving hands that are taking care of their loved ones. So we see a lot of this, and I feel with speaking to the patients that we have as well as the staff, it's truly from the heart that they see you. So they see through your eyes to your heart, and they feel you more than ever. So those heightened senses of awareness are there, um, and they're so grateful. They're grateful for the care that they give. We've had several patients, and um, patients coming in with COVID um, have a lot of severe respiratory issues, and they're very afraid. 
So if you've ever been in a position where you can't breathe or you're having a tough time breathing, it's the scariest thing. And it's even fearful for the nurses and the staff to see the patients that are struggling and afraid. And they're, they're talking them through it. They're holding their hand. They're staying there. And they give themselves selflessly with such courage. Um, it's just amazing to see. So it really is a heartfelt way of nursing at this point. Well, uh, speaking of, of courage and a, and, and a positive outlook, you're known for this, uh, Leslie. And maybe, <laughs> maybe in this regard, uh, um, you could tell us a bit about uh, the In This Together uh, initiative and what you've done with social media to address some of these very issues you've highlighted for us. Sure. So when this all began um, starting out here, um, I'd gotten a call from the um, PR department to meet with Callie because I was one of the nurses who was um, very vocal in trying to support our staff and support our patients and seeing what was going on. And just from the top leadership all the way down that we were getting such communication and support from everyone, from Carol Gomes to Carolyn Santoro, all the way down to the nurses, the ADs, the nurse managers. It's been such an incredible support. And I really wanted to speak to someone in PR to let them know that there are so many of us nurses that are so grateful for the support we've gotten. So when we spoke, when I spoke to um, Callie, one of the things she asked me towards the end of the interview is, if you had a theme or a motto, what do you think that you would make that as far as through this whole pandemic we're going through and I looked at it and I said you know the one thing it is is we're all in this together and you see that day in and day out that we work side by side um, for the good of the patients for the good of each other to support we understand each other's struggles and strifes and fear and overcoming all of this and just being there for each other and you see that and it's so beautiful to see that everybody really is all in this together and it kind of took off. And so they asked me if I would put on a social media, you know, the all in this together. And it kind of just took off. And it's been so heartwarming. And I'm so grateful and appreciative of being part of this. So uh, that's that's really marvelous to hear about. Um, Cindy, maybe here you could uh, you could also tell us a bit about the uh, face behind the mask initiative. I mean, that resonates with some of this and, you know, what it's meant for our teams. Yeah, um, I think if there's one other theme that you could uh, assign to this whole crisis is that it's like nothing that we've ever seen before in any way, in any regard. The virus is like nothing we've ever seen. The care environment is like nothing we've ever seen. Not having visitors is not like anything we've ever seen. I remember being, Allison, you may have been there uh, in the in the room when we had a meeting where they first suggested that we might limit visitation in the hospital and then they said and we might even have to shut down visitation in the hospital and there was a gasp in the room because people couldn't even imagine it so Mm. the whole everything about it is just like nothing we've ever seen before so caregivers if if you see anybody in full ppe to go in to care for a covid patient you don't see anything but the PPE and two eyes sticking mm-hmm. out. And the eyes are probably sticking out behind a couple of layers of plastic, you know, a shield and maybe some goggles, too. It's, it's not very reassuring. You can't tell what the person looks like. You can't see a smile. You can't distinguish one PPE'd person from the next it's (laughs) they all look the same they all look the same and i i can only imagine if someone is really ill or slightly altered or or not you know someone with dementia in any 
to any degree, it must be just frightening. Terrifying. And so um, one of our redeployed nurse practitioners picked up on that right away, and she was not comfortable with that at all. So she had designed her own um, kind of uh, extra large ID card where she had a big picture of her smiling face and um, and some uh, reassuring uh, a reassuring phrase in a couple of different languages on it and and she would uh, you know point to that and and tell the, the her patients hey th this is what I really look like this is this is me that's and great. yeah so th I think that's been great and we've been helping to uh, implement that uh, not only first for nurses and also for some of the other caregivers so that they can um, not only be more identifiable, but just to, ha to have that human connection. It's, it's very hard to connect in a human way to a big um, blob of PPE. <laughs> so. so let me uh, let me welcome our uh, viewers and listeners again to the Beyond the Expected uh, podcast. Uh, uh, we're discussing the coronavirus effect. Uh, my three guests with me today are Cindy Ann Beck, who's the nursing policy coordinator in the Department of Regulatory Affairs at Stony Brook University Hospital, Leslie Pronesti, uh, who is a registered nurse in our surgical oncology unit uh, and who has uh, taken leadership of uh, many significant initiatives in the response to the COVID-19 pandemic, and Allison Rowe, uh, who is currently the Associate Director of Nursing in the Department of Emergency and Cardiac Services at, at University Hospital. Um, Allison, let me uh, ask you about uh, the Rapid Response Team. This is another uh, group that I think uh, uh, predates, obviously, COVID-19, but it has played an important role in the response to COVID-19. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, our rapid response team definitely uh, does predate COVID. Um, and I would say that um, it is a critical resource uh, pre-COVID and uh, during COVID uh, for our patients and our staff. So unfortunately, these patients definitely um, deteriorate pretty quickly. So a patient that looks well coming in uh, will have the um, unfortunate experience to have an event um, at some point potentially and need quick care. So our med surge nurses and our med surge units um, are are uncomfortable taking care of critically ill patients, and we certainly don't um, put that expectation on them. So a patient on a med surge unit um, that's starting to look unwell. Our nurses rely, our teams rely on our rapid response team to be able to quickly come and assess that patient, support that patient, and be able to move that patient timely to a um, better environment to meet that person's needs or reassure the patient and the staff that the environment that they're in is safe for them and that we can manage them safely um, in a lower level of care. So our rapid response team is pretty critical to our uh our operations on a normal day, and uh, they've become critical as these patients uh, start looking unwell, and we need another set of eyes on them to so, help reassure us. And it's interesting, you're saying the team on the one hand is uh, obviously sharing information with the patient uh, himself or herself, but they're also sharing important information with the care team, 
where this patient is, right? To either make sure that the care being provided is appropriate or to move them, as you say, to yeah, another unit. It reassure us, give us recommendations that, the, you know, maybe if we, you know, add a little bit of more oxygen or change a medication that the patient can do well on this unit. So these are experienced nurses, experienced nurse practitioners, our physicians um, that have been at the hospital for a long time, really comfortable with critically ill patients. Our ICU nurses help cover uh, the rapid response team as well and make sure that uh, they are bringing their experience to the bedside for that patient, for that nurse, for that uh, team that don't typically take care of um, ICU level patients. So sometimes they stay where they are and uh, very often they quickly get evaluated and upgraded and that team helps uh, make sure that the patient has a smooth transition to the next level of care. You know, it's, I look back, you know, when what did we do before the rapid response team? And I, I think that we can all say that it was an amazing initiative um, when it came out a number of years ago and something that we just um, wouldn't ever dream to have uh, be without. Fascinating. So, Leslie, this, you know, this, this conversation about communication among the team, I mean, it, it prompts me to turn back to you again, since uh, all of your efforts within this together and related initiatives. Um, what are the main messages, uh, if we can call them that, that you think it's important get shared among the care teams? Uh, obviously, there are important bits of information about patients. We understand that, especially as shifts change and so forth. But more broadly, main messages personally and professionally as all our care teams are responding to this this pandemic. I would, I would have to say, first of all, I... I just want to give a shout out also to the rapid response team. I don't know where we would be without them. They are incredible, um, led by Barbara Mills, who is um, just the best. And so we we utilize them quite often. We ask call for drive-bys to come over to take mm -hmm. a look and see when we're just a little uh, uneasy about situations and seeing acute changes. So I just want to give that out to them because they're great. great. Um, I, I would honestly say that um, you are not alone is one of the big messages that we always kind of are sharing with it, with each other and around and to the patients, um, personally and professionally. So there's a lot of times where we feel that, are we the only ones who feel this way? Are, are we alone in feeling this way right. or doing things? And um, sharing with that and knowing that you're not alone, you've got support, um, you have a place to turn to. Um, they've also, for us at the hospital, have opened up a unit um, like a respite unit for us, which has been in amazing mm. um, that they've got snacks and a rest. They've got a water bubbles yeah. and it's a, a retreat for us to go to kind of break away for when you get that 20 minutes that you can to kind of like escape there um, and, and talk with other other. Um, healthcare workers Very throughout important. the hospital. Carol Gomes was telling us about yes, that. Yes, uh, it's it's amazing, yeah. and and everybody's coming at different times. So you're meeting up with different people throughout the facility um, that are experiencing mm -hmm. different things and sharing within each, with each other. Um, and it's just nice to know that you've got other people who understand and can you know you can lean on each other. So so that was another a question I had. So the level of engagement, you think it's strong? People are responding to this. They're taking advantage of these initiatives. They see the importance of 
I mean, we talk a lot about self-care, especially in the context of the current emergency. Initially, of course, we're talking about, you know, stay safe, stay healthy, you know, wash your hands, wear masks, et cetera, by six foot separation and so on. But you're talking also about emotional and mental self-care and behavioral self-care. So so you're seeing a rising engagement around those issues among your colleagues? Oh, I am. And I'm seeing it throughout the hospital. It's um, so amazing to see. Um, the interactions between people from different floors, um, CNSs and nurse managers, and that are coming through the floors to make sure everybody has what they need, if there's other things. And then just the interactions between between housekeeping and transport and nursing assistants and nurses and leadership. Um, everybody is looking out for each other. It's almost like big brother, big sister. We're all taking care of each other and making sure that we all have what we need um, emotionally and physically. Um, in every way. Is there is there uh, any particular story that's moved you to date? Any particular incident or uh, act uh, on someone's part that really that really caught your attention? There's been so many. So many. There's been yeah. so many. But I bet um, every day. One in particular is I have to say that I am always amazed and inspired by the new nurses that have come out over the past few years. They've come out of nursing school and they are experiencing um, a situation that you've never even thought about in nursing school that you would be in the middle of a pandemic. And these nurses who were here for two, maybe three years who have come from a novice nurse into um, a little bit more. um, One in particular was we had a patient who was COVID and he was um, decompensating and she was all in. And he was so afraid, and she was writing backwards on the glass trying to get information to us as we're trying to communicate back and forth what to do. And he knew that she was there for him, and he was (laughs) petrified. And I saw a a connection that just made my heart just bounce because it's something that you just – see in these times of crisis and to rise up and she had him for several nights in a row and she she wanted him she wanted to take care of him he wanted her and he ends up going up to the icu and she was the kind of nurse that would go to the icu to check on him him. and look in on him through a window on a ventilator and actually say a prayer for him so i i give such credit to them and these are the kind of stories you see throughout the hospital it's amazing the respiratory therapist unbelievable the nurses the icu nurses the frontline icu nurses it's beyond anything that the the public can even imagine as grateful as they are and we know how grateful they are it's overwhelming um it's it's an incredible thing to watch yeah that's that's a great story um and uh, you know speaking of new nurses and uh, additions to the university hospital team we've had uh, we've had a group of nurses come and join us from upstate medical center uh in syracuse we're very grateful to uh nancy page the uh, chief nursing officer up there and uh, bob corona the ceo uh at upstate uh they detailed some of their team to head on down here to, to Stony Brook and, and help us out. Cindy, maybe you could tell us a bit about the impact these, uh, these colleagues are having from upstate as they work alongside our, our teams here. Yeah, again, that, it's an, another one that falls into the category of uh, something kind of like we've never seen before, it, but on, in, the good, in the good way. Um, that, that's just been super exciting. I mean, when, when this whole thing started, um, without a doubt, um, the emergency department and the critical care areas were, were going to be the, the units that were going to be the, 
earliest hit and the hardest hit as far as the nurses were concerned. They were just going to get an, an enormous um, strain and, and workload on the, on the workforce, and they were, they were going to get, you know, the most tired and, and the most, um, you know, again, strain uh, the earliest on. And um, so the problem with that is you just can't throw anyone in to be an emergency department or a critical care nurse. That is a certain level of training and experience that uh, there's no substitute for. And so uh, there isn't an easy answer for that. And I don't know whose genius idea. It, Allison, was it your genius idea? I don't know. Maybe. It wasn't. Okay. All right. But Allison is a genius. So there you go. Correct. I like yes, it. That, yes. is, that is correct. It, it might have been someone on the rapid response team, and I just wanted to get my props to the rapid response team in there because we all want to stay on their good side. Yes. But, um, yeah, I don't know whose idea it was, but um, it's very interesting because, yes, while it was their leadership who uh, supported it and, and, um, and helped make it happen, if you talk to those nurses, they are and were so eager to come here. And I actually heard one of them the other day uh, speaking to our chief nursing officer, uh, Carolyn Santora, and this was a, a nurse who was part of the first wave who should already be home, and she's still here. And she was asking, who do I have to talk to so I can stay longer? She said, I don't, I don't want to go home. I don't feel like I should be going home yet. I don't, I don't feel right leaving. I want to stay. And so they're not just here and contributing in such a meaningful way because they have the skill and the knowledge. They're eager to be here and they're happy to to come alongside and I don't know if there's a better feeling when you are in a really bad situation than having someone come alongside you and cheerfully help out I, I just don't know if there's anything better than that and that's what they've done and I don't know how we can ever thank them hmm. that's that's great to hear um Cindy since I have you and maybe you could tell us uh a little bit more about another uh, initiative here involving patients about the My Story Project. Um, tell our listeners and viewers about that. Yeah, I'm excited to tell about that. And I, I must share with you, um, it's very personal to me when I hear Leslie talk about about the, um, the families. Um, it's very personal to me. I have a brother who um, lives far away, but he was the first uh, patient in the county that he lives in that was uh, placed on a ventilator for uh, COVID-19 pneumonia. So I know what it's like to be a family member um, of a very seriously ill patient in this situation and to ha to not be able to um, have access uh, to uh, my family member and it's a it's a there are many, many strange things about it. You're you're separated and and you you don't you don't see what your loved one looks like. You don't see what the nurses who are taking care of your loved one looks like. You don't get to interact with them uh, very much. But uh, what I didn't like at the time was that I couldn't, I couldn't communicate to them very easily what he was like because he was just a vented, he was just a body with a tube sticking out of it. And I, they were wonderful. They were taking great care of him. So I was always trying to do that, trying to personalize him. And this, this project, um, uh, is, is exactly that. Uh, to, it's a way to help tell the story of the patient where um, we have some of our redeployed nurses who are proactively calling families, 
making it clear um, they are not part of the patient's care team, but they're calling on behalf of the care team in order to, if the family members are willing to, uh, to elicit some information from them about the, the patient, like what, what name does the patient like to go by and what, um, what did they do for a living or are they retired and uh, what other significant family members or loved ones do they have and what hobbies or interests do they have, what kind of music do they like to listen to. And they, they put together a whole um, sheet and they, the family members, uh, by the way, I don't believe they have ever been turned down yet. And um, they put together a whole sheet and the family members can even send in pictures if they want to include on it. And this gets posted um, on the door and in the room. And what it does is it's an opportunity to um, personalize this patient who right. just is. So in a way, what it, it sounds like what it's doing, it's, it's helping to make the care team part of the family. It, it does. And I can just tell you also from experience, it can, it can very much help when that patient does get off the vent. And I like to say it in a very positive yes. way. Yes. Um, when the patient does get off the vent, it's really important and helpful for the care team to know what that patient's baseline is, not just their physical baseline, but the, the things that they are um, interested in, right. because those are the things that can be used to help draw them out. To bring them they, back. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, and yeah, that's, that's, and I, again, I saw that uh, yeah. actually literally happen with my brother. I, so. I think that's, well, uh, Pleased to hear that about your brother, and also, you know, you're you're mentioning something. I think uh, I, I've read about it in some of the press that uh, being on a ventilator, obviously, that's a physical uh, insult and a physical issue, but it's also an emotional and a mental issue. And bringing people back from that experience is, uh, you know, no simple task. So uh, this is a very moving story to hear about how this information, this personal information, can enable all of you and the care teams to be part of that recovery too. There's the physical recovery, but there's also the emotional, the emotional recovery. Also, you, you were instrumental as well about uh, helping set up the coronavirus hotline. Yes. Um, maybe you could tell us a bit about that. It took, it's taken over a thousand calls in a single week, I understand. I would be Busy. lying if I said I was instrumental in setting it up, so I can't do that. I will, but I Well, I'll I say you tell were you instrumental. About. How's okay. that? So you, you can lie for me, but, <laughs> okay. no, but I can tell you. Yeah, the, the, so I actually visit, happened to, by accident, end up visiting there today and uh, got to see what goes on there. Um, but they are doing a great job down there. Again, a bunch of redeployed nurses. You know, it's just a, a fact of life in a, in a hospital environment that many of the um, folks who are working in, in a lot of the different departments um, that are not delivering patient care happen to be RNs. Um, and so many of the, the departments that redeployed their nursing staff um, were able to uh, staff things like the um, the hotline, the call center, and so they uh, they take phone calls and they receive. They, I believe they're open from like 8 a.m. to to midnight, uh, seven days a week, and they take all manner of phone calls. M many are questions about testing and about symptoms. Right. Um, right. But I, I happen to be listening to to one of our. Um, uh, great call center uh, staff members today. Uh, many of the phone calls end up um, kind of like a little therapeutic communication sure. toward the end of it. Sure. Pe people are scared and people are troubled. And so it's just a very interesting, unique opportunity. And then, so of all the volume of calls, the, the calls get bumped, uh, you know, they, they refer people to 
all different places, whether it be um, they are encouraged to stay home and watch for certain symptoms or to um, see their primary uh, medical uh, doctor or to some are in, in instructed based on what they're told to go to an emergency room. I think in right. several cases, uh, 911 has even been called. So, or, or to possibly come to the PLOT um, testing site. Right, right. And so, and it's important to emphasize here, you made a, an important point uh, for, for our listeners and viewers, uh, because uh, substantial parts of the hospital at the moment are not doing normal business, right? They're not oh, yeah, doing no. elective procedures. They're not taking care of those whose treatment and care can, can wait so that we can focus all our energy on the emergency of the pandemic. We have uh, many professionals, uh, healthcare providers, who can be redeployed, as, uh, as you've pointed out, Cindy, to various tasks related to this battle, as you called it at the beginning of our conversation. And it takes on many facets. There's the battle literally in the patient's rooms for those who are suffering, but there's also the battle of information and reassurance and engaging with the public. Uh, about their questions. So that's a really important point. Yeah, if I'm, I'm not mistaken, I mean, this was born out of the fact that initially there was a huge influx of calls just coming to the hospital right. for these very things. To the, to the main switchboard. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> not helpful. Yeah. Not helpful. Yeah. Right. So right. That was going right. to crash that soon. So, so um, we have a few minutes left. So I, I want to turn uh, to all three of you, uh, um, you know, to <laughs> ask a simple question. How's this? Um, <laughs> You're all on the front line every day, um, and you're dealing with an unprecedented set of professional challenges, obviously, uh, uh, but you're also human beings. <laughs> you have lives outside of the hospital. You have your loved ones, your own families. Um, Cindy shared with us, uh, uh, you know, her, her concerns for a brother. So, you know, how do you, how do you manage this? How do you manage the pressures associated with being on the front line and trying to protect your families and your loved ones, whether directly uh, at home or uh, even from afar in the, in the supportive sense. Um, Allison, why don't we start with you? Um, sure, well, it's a loaded question. <laughs> uh, it's a big question, yes. <laughs> It's a big question. Yeah. I would say that um, my approach is to reassure uh, my kids. So my little guy is eight and I have a 10-year-old and a 12-year-old. And so um, they see me go to work every day. They see me wear scrubs every day to work. And that's not normal for mommy to go to work in scrubs. And so very early on, it was um, them being worried for me. And I need to reassure them that I know the right things to do at work to, when I need to wear my mask, when I need to wash my hands, when I need to do all the things that I need to do to stay safe at work. Um, that they trust, that I know what I'm doing, that I am going to do it to the best of my ability, and that um, if the occasion happens that I'm not feeling well, that I'll start isolating myself from them. And thank God um, everything has been well. You know, but the personal and the professional balance is always a tricky one. Um, you know, my kids are doing very much a lot of their um, homeschooling, uh, you know, right. independently. Right. Thankfully, I have a um, family that's close that are, are in my tight quarantine group, so they've been able to um, help out to as help. well. But 
I say often, you know, you need to have some resilience. You know, you need to let some of this stuff roll off a bit. You can't dwell on too much of it. You need to know that when you come to work, you're doing the best you can for the most people that you uh, can. And you need to trust that there's a sea of people that work with you, around you, behind you, that will pick up where you left off for the day. Um, and, and that reassures me that when I get to go home for the day, that there is another group that's right behind me um, that will pick up uh, for the things that I am not doing and, you know, do it just as well um, or better, frankly. And, um, you know, trust in each other that uh, we're going to all work sort of swim in the same uh, direction and that no one person can be able to manage this independently. Um, but I definitely think resilience and then hope, hope. you know. <laughs> yes. Great, great sentiments. Leslie? So um, I agree with Allison 100% on, on all of the these hot topics that she pointed to. Um, I myself, I have two children. Uh, my daughter is 20 and my other daughter is 26 who's a teacher and is working remotely from home. So that makes it a lot easier for her not to have to go out and travel. And my 20-year-old is in college who, of course, is invincible that this is never going to affect that population. <laughs> so that was a struggle to have to um, really kind of um, hammer home that this is different and you need to wear a mask when you go out to the store or you're, you see someone, um, you need to stay home. You need to do your work from home. You need to understand that this, you know, we have to work this until this, we have an end to this or that as best as we can go back to what we will be the new normal. Because clearly this is not anywhere near what we were used to, nor will we go back to anything I feel that we, we were before um, or take a long time. So they're usually very confident in in um, my judgment, and when I came home and said, "All right, this is this is big. This is big. We really need a life change going on here." So, what it's done for us personally at home has got, done some games of Yahtzee and some Clue <laughs> and some more family meals around the table, yes. which kind of like went out the yeah. out the window yeah. for a while here with everybody <laughs> being busy and coming and going. And so, we've been able to draw close to each other, which has been really amazing. So, I've been. So blessed with that. Um, and the support of my two children um, has always throughout my life been so incredible. And professionally, um, again, we take care of each other. Somebody, If somebody is out or somebody is sick, if you need anything, we're here. We'll drop it off, making sure you're okay. Do you have a fever? Are you all right? And, um, you know, just taking all the precautions. And um, we do. We're in this together. Yes. One yes. and all. Yeah. Cindy? Well, I just want to say I think... I'm near the front line. I'm not on the front line, but I do still come to the to a hospital every day for work. So I try to um, treat it like I'm on the front line. So I'm trying to exercise very rational but real precautions and try to model um, good precautions to my family members, who except for my one daughter, no one else is, is in healthcare right now. So I. Um, I'm wearing scrubs to work every day, in part in case I, I need to go to the floors and all, like Allison, I normally don't. And also because um, I wash everything that I've worn every single day. Nothing that goes to the hospital comes in past the garage. And so I'm doing th those sorts of precautions. And, um, you know, we're, we're exercising all the other precautions. We're really not going to stores except when we absolutely must. Only one person goes. And we, as a, our, our tight um, quarantine group, we, you know, we 
every time someone goes to the store, they ask everyone else who, who needs something so that we can minimize the, for that, the that group, yeah. the exposure. And, uh, and I'm trying to, you know, just kind of blow off the steam. Uh, I'm exercising a lot, so that's good. I'm trying, I'm trying not to do the eat a lot thing. I'm trying to do the exercise a lot thing. <laughs> so I have a great goal. This, I've already had to cancel two vacations because of this quarantine, so I have a goal of making it to my July vacation, and I want to climb a, a particular mountain this summer with my kids who want me to do it so i want to be in shape good for, for you that. Awesome. So, that's a great that that's, that's awesome. a great goal you know i i uh, um uh we're we're reaching uh, the close of our podcast i want to uh close by uh mentioning something uh, uh cindy mentioned about uh the colleagues who visited us who are visiting us from uh, upstate medical center in syracuse cindy shared with us uh uh, the story about one of them saying that they wanted to stay, that they hoped that the conclusion of their assignment at Stony Brook University Hospital could could be extended. And I think that that speaks to something that um, has been quite vivid to me throughout all of these podcasts, and it's vivid today. What's, what's going on at University Hospital and in our affiliate hospitals is uh, record-setting, trend-setting. It's being noticed uh, regionally and nationally uh, you, Allison, Cindy, Leslie, all three of you, all of your colleagues uh, on the front lines, you're all making a difference, and it is really being noticed. Uh, I would call out in that regard um, our leadership. Carolyn Santoro was mentioned earlier, our chief nursing officer. Mark Sands, our chief medical officer in the hospital. Carol Gomes, I mentioned earlier, the CEO. Uh, Peggy McGovern, head of clinical operations. Ken Kashansky, the, the senior vice president for Stony Brook Medicine. All of the leadership and all of the teams are uh, waging a battle, as Cindy called it at the top of our broadcast, against a, a fearsome enemy and having success. Uh, and I just want to uh, assure all of you that's being noticed. Um, I, I want you all to know none of us can ever thank you all enough for what you're doing, for the sacrifices you're making, both at work and at home, to keep us safe and healthy. Uh, uh, um, I hope you heard the roar of the Thunderbirds and the Blue Angels yesterday when they came by to salute you as the community does uh, every day. And I know I speak for all our listeners and viewers when I wish all, of, all three of you, Allison, Cindy, and Leslie, continued health and continued success as you bring us through what we hope will soon be, whatever soon means, uh, a conclusion to this pandemic emergency. Thank you all, and thanks to all our viewers and listeners for joining us for Beyond the Expected. Hello.